good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here, and I want to welcome you to Phoenix Bible Church. If you're new, a uh, special welcome to you. And just so glad uh, that all of us can gather together and worship, worship through song and now through the proclamation of God's word. But before we dive into that, I do want to address something in here that everybody else is talking about out there, uh, something called the coronavirus. If you haven't heard about it, Google it or, you know, read CDC, like check on your life. Uh, but I just want to address it. And just to be clear on the front end, I don't work for the CDC. Uh, I'm not on staff there. And so I'm not the expert. Go, go read their website for guidelines and all of those things. But I am your pastor and I want to talk about things that our culture is talking about. And I want to talk about them from the Bible. Amen. Amen. So I want to just briefly talk about what wisdom looks like versus fear, wisdom versus fear. First of all, for us as a church, here's what that looked like this week. As, as more developments uh, came out, as it continues to spread, as a staff and as elders, we just started talking about, okay, well, what do we need to do? It's not necessarily like this big thing in Arizona yet, but we want to be wise. What do we need to do? And so just a few things today that you'll see. We have extra hand sanitizer. We did extra cleaning and talked to the facilities team at Phoenix Christian to do those things and our kids ministry team and, and all of those things, even check in a little bit differently. And, and we're doing communion today. If you don't know, we do communion the second Sunday of every month where we celebrate that Jesus died for our sin, that his body and his blood were shed for us and we partake in communion. We're still going to do that today because it's really important. It is the crux of our faith. If you don't know Jesus yet, you're wondering, hey, why do all these people gather even in the midst of something like the coronavirus? Why do we do that? Is it a religious ritual? Is it external behavior modification? No, we believe Jesus Christ. It's not our works, it's his work on the cross that it was finished and we take communion to celebrate that, to remind ourselves of that reality. So we're gonna take communion today, but we're gonna do it with individually wrapped elements. Now, I hate doing that, I, and I, I did that growing up, and I just don't, it didn't, the Bible talks about sharing and fellowship with one another, it doesn't feel like individually wrapped elements does that, does it? But we want to walk in wisdom, and so instead of coming up to the front to dip bread and juice or wine, we're going to hand you individually wrapped elements to take communion and still experience the reality that Jesus died on the cross for us, the crux of our faith, but be wise as we do that. So... We want to walk in wisdom, not fear, as a church. I want that for you, personally. All right? Here's how you know whether you're walking in wisdom or fear. Just guaranteed, right off the bat, you can check this off your list. You're walking in fear if you're reading reddit.com. Come on, somebody. If you're getting your, your information not from the CDC or CNN, but Reddit, you're walking in fear. Right? Particularly some of you who are scrolling through that 100th comment thread in Reddit, you're walking in fear, right? And, and the Bible is going to tell us, hey, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of what? Of power, of boldness, of love, right? You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You are different than the rest of the world who is freaking out right now. So we need to walk in wisdom, but we don't walk in fear. And so, so I would encourage you, read God's word. Read the book of James. It's the wisdom book of the New Testament. Ask God for wisdom. We're going to do that here in just a second. Ask God for wisdom. We want to be wise, but we don't want to be fearful, right? Being fearful and living a life of worry, Jesus says it, right? Who of you by worrying could add a single hour to your life? And the answer is nobody. <laughs> nobody does that. 
But we think, well, if I worry about it, if I'm fearful about it, actually it does the opposite. Again, I'm not a medical expert, just prefacing this all day, every day. I'm not a medical expert, but I do know this. Fear, stress, worry, what does that do? Makes you more susceptible to illness, not less, right? So we need to walk in wisdom, not fear. We're going to do that as a church. I want you to do that personally. And I want to pray. I want to take a moment to ask God for wisdom. James 1 says, hey, if you want wisdom, ask. God gives it generously, amen? Amen. So I want to ask for wisdom. I want to pray for people affected by this um, as we get into the message. So would you pray with me as we ask for wisdom together? God, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't just give wisdom, you are wisdom. And scripture speaks to that. And we're in a room right now, not because we already have wisdom, but because we need it. Not because we already have everything together, but because we don't. And I just pray that would just breathe a sigh of relief for every person in this room. God, that we are meeting with a real God who speaks into real situations and real viruses and real uh, panic crisis modes in our country and in our world. You You're not sleeping, you're not slumbering, you're alive, you're well, you're protecting, you're making provision that we don't even know about yet, and God, we just look to you. We don't look to fear or worry, we look to you. God, I do pray for the men and women across the world who are affected by this. God, I pray for the men and women who are affected by not just the coronavirus, but by cancer and by other ailments and just signs of this broken world in which we live. Uh, this, this virus maybe just perks us up to that a little bit more, but the reality is every single day uh, we are living in a broken world. And I just pray for those people. I pray that you would give them comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 comfort, the, the comfort that only you can supply, that, that as we receive it, 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 we can add that comfort to other people and extend it to other people. I pray that you would bring that kind of supernatural comfort. I pray that you would heal people. God, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified and people would begin to look to you. Maybe they haven't ever before, but in the midst of their fear, they would look to faith. And God, I pray that in the name of Jesus. And I pray that as the church of Jesus Christ, as the people in this room, specifically of Phoenix Bible Church, we would be marked by wisdom and faith, not fear. God, we would be a light in our community, a light in the city of Phoenix. We would recognize that people are struggling and are fearful, and we would speak life and faith into their lives. We'd invite them to church, point them to your word, and point them to Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. God, help us to be those kinds of people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Well, hey, we're going to jump right in as we get into the message today. Grab a Bible. You're going to need that. James 4. James 4 is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 12. If you are new with us, we are in week nine of a series called Faith That Works in the book of James. And, and we've looked at all sorts of things like faith and temptation and, and faith and wisdom twice. We, we've looked at all, all these things about, about faith and, and works and words. And today we're looking at this topic of faith and fighting. If you take notes, faith and fighting is where we're headed today from James chapter four. And we are going to jump right in. So get ready. Verse one, James four. Look at it with me. It says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? If you take notes, again, here's our first point. The remedy for conflict begins with acknowledging the reality of conflict. The remedy for conflict begins with acknowledging the reality of conflict. So we're talking about fighting. We're talking about conflicts. James addresses, hey, we want to know the cause 
of these quarrels, of these conflicts, of these fights, which we'll get into in our second point. But he talks about there's different types of conflict. He says there's quarrels and there's fights. Right? Quarrels literally means individual disputes. Fights literally means warring against one another. So he talks about the kinds of conflicts. He, he talks about where conflict occurs. He says specifically it occurs among you. Right? So James is not just talking about conflict out there. He's talking about conflict in here, in the church, in the body of Christ. I remember uh, several years ago when we first moved to Arizona, we went to Sedona, and we went to visit the Chapel of the Holy Cross. You guys been there? It's this old school church built up in the Red Rocks. If you're newer to Arizona, you should make the trip. It's a beautiful site. It's a church built up in Red Rocks, and we went to see it. It's basically a museum now, and everybody's going to tour it, and we did the same. We've been there a few times, but the first time I went, I'm talking to a staff member, and because I'm a pastor and I'm weird, I'm asking all sorts of questions about the church. Right? Everybody else is just taking pictures and doing their thing and buying souvenirs, but I'm asking, hey, tell me, what's this church really about? What, what's the history of this church? How was it founded? What was the meeting structure like? And, and all of these sorts of things. So I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me all about it. And I was like, well, hey, what does that look like now? What does that look like today? I mean, I know we're here on a weekday looking at this thing, but what does it look like on Sunday? And he said, well, we don't meet on Sunday anymore. I mean, there's like a special occasion every once in a while we do that. We don't meet regularly in this building. I was like, really? It's such a beautiful church. Church is supposed to meet together and worship God. Why don't y'all meet this place? Like, could we have this church? I mean, we'll, we'll travel up to Sedona and meet there occasionally. I don't know. Church planner. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm just mind-blowing. You don't meet here? It's such a beautiful place. And he's like, I was like, why? And he's like, well, several reasons. I mean, it's so small. It's so hard to get to, to drive to, park. It's so hard to walk to, specifically for elder, elderly people, like to walk up to if you've ever been there. And then he kind of, he's read all of all these reasons why they don't meet there uh, um, consistently anymore on Sundays, and he just at the end kind of mumbles under his breath, and he says, you know, the parking is too small, elderly people, all these things, and he's like, you know, and then people were fist fighting in the parking lot, and I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> what? Are, people were fist fighting in the parking lot? Like, are you, are, you, are you just, is that like a joke? And he's like, well, kinda. Is kinda? Like fist fighting kinda? What does that look like? And, and, and here's the reality. There's conflict in the church. Churches divide because they can't get along. Denominations divide because of conflict, because they can't get along. Conflict is not just out there. It is in here. And so here, here's the deal. We got to talk about it. Because most of us, here's what we do. We don't address conflict. We suppress it. And some of you came in today, you're, you're thinking, and maybe you haven't been in the church for a while, and you look around, and you see everybody is dressed nice, and everybody's smiling and greeting one another, not shaking hands, but, you know, high five, ear high five, right? Is that what we're supposed to do? And you're like, everybody's so nice here, and, and maybe they don't have conflict, and maybe they have everything together, and the reality is we're meeting today because we don't have everything together, not because we do. We're meeting together today because we have conflict with God and with others, and we, we need wisdom, and we need God's help, right? And James is right off the bat, he's going to say, hey, there's different kinds of conflict, there's causes of conflict, but there is conflict, it's among you. And the first remedy, the remedy for conflict begins with acknowledging the reality of it. That's what you see in the Bible. That's why so many books of the Bible are not one verse but five chapters, like the book of James. Right? 
not just a few verses, but 15 chapters. If there wasn't any conflict with God or with one another, here's how it would work in the book of James. It would say, verse one, keep up the good work. Love James. Is that what your Bible says? My Bible has five chapters. Like repeating some of the same things because we have conflict with God. We have conflict with one another. That's why the Bible is written the way it is. That's why it talks about love and forgiveness and patience. You know why? Because we don't know how to do those things. <laughs> so we need God through Scripture to teach us. And so James, right off the bat, is going to say, hey, we're just going to acknowledge this. In the body of Christ, there is conflict, and we got to address it. And again, a lot of us, we don't want to address it, so we just suppress it. And so here, here's what happens is you suppress that conversation that has some conflict in it. That conversation, maybe on the way to church this morning with your spouse. Just, oh yeah, I just don't want to talk about that right now. Suppress it. Push it down. Right? Tomorrow at work, that conflict you have with your boss. Like he doesn't want, want to let you promote in the company and he's just out to get you and everybody else, they seem fine, but he's always bringing you in his office or maybe he just does it in the hallway and he reprimands you in front of other people. Or, or maybe it's somebody across the aisle in this room and, uh, and, and they send you a text later today and it just seems passive aggressive and they put a weird emoji on it and you're like, what does that emoji even mean? I don't, I had to look up, I always have to ask my wife, she interprets emojis for me. <laughs> it's really sad. Um, but that conversation or that, or that text or that, listen, that unmet expectation. And those things happen all day, every day, and you just suppress, suppress, suppress. And then Wednesday, you're driving to work and you're late and you're trying to get in the exit lane on the 202 off the 10. And nobody will let you in, Right? And nobody will let you in, and this one person in particular, they won't let you in, and, and you just, you take all that suppressed conflict throughout the week from your spouse and your boss and your coworker, and you take it all out on that person, yeah. right? And you may have been listening to worship music, but then you start, come on, you're not worshiping anymore. Now you're using some other different words, right? And it's usually like an old lady, don't you feel bad? You actually see the person in the car. It's like an old lady. She doesn't even see you. And you're just like, you never let me in. You always do this. You're like, she didn't do anything. She didn't even know you're there, bro. You're taking that out. You're su taking out suppressed anger that you had at your wife or your husband or your coworker or your friend or somebody in, in the body of Christ, somebody in the church. And you're taking it out on an old lady. Why? Because you suppress, 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 and eventually you will address it. And parents, it's like when, you, when people are coming over to your house and you don't have time to clean, come on, and you just start putting toys in the, in the closet, and you have the next event, a few days later, you start sh just shoving it in the closet. Where, Mom, where do we put this? You shove it in the closet. Shove it in the closet. You shove that little conflict in the closet, and then one day you open it up, and what happens? Falls on you, and it hurts, and it hurts other people, and you blow up, right? And I know none of you have ever done this. Right? But hypothetically, this is the cycle that happens. Why does it happen? Because we are unwilling to address conflict. We only suppress it. I see it all the time, most often in premarital counseling with couples who are excited to get married. And my wife and I are talking through, there's a, there's a conflict chapter in our premarital counseling book. But every chapter is on, on conflict, right? You talk about finances. How do you navigate finances? You got to navigate conflict. 
You talk about sex. How do we navigate sex in our past, sexual history? How do you do it? You got to learn how to navigate conflict. In-laws, come on. How do you navigate? How do you do in-laws? Conflict, right? Got to learn how to fight clean. And I remember just all these couples we'll meet with, and we're talking to them, and they don't ever say this, but you can see the twinkle in their eye. We're talking about conflict, and they're just holding each other's hand, looking at each other, and my wife and I are just like, it's going to be hard. Right now, you're showing, you're putting your best foot forward on that date night. In marriage, you put both feet forward in your whole body, 24-7. Marriage exposes sin. It doesn't fix sin. There's going to be conflict, and they're just holding hands. And they, again, they, don't, they, would never, never, they would never say this, but they're thinking, baby, he don't know our love. I mean, I know, like for other simple people like you, Pastor, your marriage, for other simple people out there, like they have conflict, but baby, not us. He don't know what we got. And let me just tell you, those are the people that don't just need premarital counseling, they need post-married counseling every single time. Why? Because they never come to grips with the reality of conflict, therefore they never prepare for it, they just experience the pain from it. And so James, right off the bat, he's going to say, hey, there's quarrels, there's fights, they're among you. The quicker you will acknowledge that they exist, the quicker you can be prepared to, to fight these, these conflicts well in a Christ-centered way. Right? So the first step, the first remedy for conflict, you've got to acknowledge the reality of it. Second point we see in verse 2. Look at the verse with me. Verse 2, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's what James is doing. He's mimicking his older brother Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking these external actions like murder, and he's boiling them down to what's inside your heart. Like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, murder, it goes back to your anger. Adultery, it goes back to your lust, right? So James is, is doing the same thing Jesus does. He's talking about our desire and where sin and conflict begins. He, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. He's talking about manipulating, not just asking God, not just praying to God. He's talking about trying to manipulate God and manipulate people in the midst of conflict. Verse 4, he doesn't mince words. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, just pausing briefly here, there's a lot going on there, but he calls them adulterous people. He talks about, hey, if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. He talks about that God is jealous. And sometimes because of Oprah, we, we get confused with this. I don't know if you've ever seen that from Oprah. She talked about the reason she left the Christian faith was because God's a jealous God. And if God's a jealous God, well, he seems really needy. And I can't serve a God like that. He's not big enough. Anybody ever seen that? Just me watching Oprah? Yeah. Okay. It's all right. But so we get confused with this, like why is he saying uh, adulterous people and why is God jealous for us? It, it kind of seems like a flawed relationship, right? It seems like your relationship. I'm jealous of my husband. He's talking to that lady. And is, this, is this what he's talking about? And, and the answer is no. What, what scripture talks about when it talks about that God's a jealous God, it means that he's pursuing you. 
He, he deserves all of you. And so when you're friends with the world, as James talks about, you are committing adultery against your Father in heaven because you're going outside of him for fulfillment, for rest, for satisfaction. And God says, no, it's all found in me. I, I want you to come to me. And the reality is God's not sinful in his jealousy. He's holy. He pursues you in the midst of your conflict, in the midst of your sin. When you're running away from God and you are running to the world and other things, God still pursues you because he's jealous for you. So that's what James is talking about. And he's using this adultery language like a marriage and a jealousy language like we experience in marriage, but it's a holy jealousy. Verse 6 says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Notice what it says. Look at it. It's not that God just doesn't bless prideful people. It's not that, hey, if you're prideful, you'll miss out on some blessings of God. Now, what does he say? God opposes the proud. That should scare us a little bit. To be on the other side of God and experiencing opposition from God, like what does it take to to be that kind of person? James says, you just got to be a prideful person and God directly opposes you. And so it should sober us and James is trying to do that for us. He's talking about adulterous people. He's talking about jealousy. He's talking about prideful people that God opposes because he's trying to make us see, hey, this is, what, this is where your conflict starts. This is where it starts, and it starts with, with you. And that should sober you. Look at the text with me. Notice where James put the, puts the emphasis in conflict. He says, you desire, you covet, you ask wrongly. Twice he says, your passions, you adulterous people. Where does James put the emphasis in conflict? Us, right? Where do we usually put the emphasis for conflict? Circumstances. Well, you see, Tim, I don't, you don't understand. I mean, the coronavirus is like a real thing, and I, I get scared about that, and so I had to strangle the person to get the sanitizer. Right? Uh, you don't understand, Tim. My, my job is just kind of busy right now, and, and you know, just things are kind of stressful. Mom, you, don't realize, you don't realize the kind of boss I have. Like, I know you work for the church and kind of work on Sundays. People say that. But I got a real job, and you don't understand what I'm up against in my job. I'm trying to climb the ladder of success, and, and I got all these people trying to take me out. And, and that's the reason for the conflict. Hey, you don't understand. You don't have to live with my spouse. Right? You don't know the things she has said to me. You don't know the passive-aggressive behavior, the things she doesn't say to me. You don't know how he never picks up his towel. Hey, you, you don't know how he speaks to our kids and how, how he doesn't speak to our kids, and how I have to do everything around the house. Anybody convicted yet? Right? You don't realize, like, I got all these, and what are we pointing to? Circumstances in our conflict. Well, these circumstances are, it's this outside force that's causing the conflict. What does James say? It's inside, right? It's your desire. It's your covetousness. It's you asking wrongly and manipulating the situation. It's your passions. It's you have adultery in your heart. You're a prideful person. God opposes people like that. It stirs up within, and then it boils up and spills out on other people, and then you have conflict. And James is saying, hey, get out the mirror. 
Get the, the speck out of your own eye before you dig out the log in somebody else's. Don't just look at your, your circumstances. Look internally. Hey, what am I contributing to this conflict? Uh, there's a movie uh, called Creed. Uh, they're coming out with a second one, I think, but it's, it's based on the Rocky movies. And if you've ever been at Phoenix Bible Church uh, for any length of time, you know I reference the Rocky movies a lot. All right, I've mentioned I had two dogs. One was named Rocky and one was named Adrian. Right? And if you don't know what that, that means, you just go watch the movie, right? Uh, but I'm a huge Rocky fan, and so Creed is not as good, but I had to go watch it, right? And in the Creed movie, there's this impactful moment. Rocky is training up Apollo Creed's son, and they're in the gym, and he takes little Apollo Creed, and he puts him in front of the mirror, and he's got gloves on, and he's in the middle of training, but he, like Rocky does, and he puts him in front of the mirror, and he says, hey, who do you see in that mirror? He's like, me, Rocky. He's like, hey, that, that person staring back at you in the mirror, that is your greatest opponent. And so he just leaves him at the mirror, he says, you work on that for a while, and he walks away, right? Rocky was preaching some truth right now in that moment. Rocky was preaching James. Hey, your biggest opponent in life, it's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your circumstances. It's you. It's, it's your pride. It's the fact that you have these desires that you do suppress and you never address. And you need to look internally, not just circumstantially, in your life. And James is using some pretty significant language to point us to that truth. And here's what I know, is most often we don't look internally, we just look circumstantially until after the fact. And maybe not just right after, but maybe months after, maybe years after. Anybody ever said this? Like conflict occurs, it blows up, it doesn't go well, there is fights, there's quarreling, and then you don't talk to that person or you yell at that person or you just never bring it up or whatever the case is for you and there's, there's this disconnect now with that person and then maybe months later, maybe it's with your dad. Maybe it's years later. Maybe it is with a coworker. Maybe it's somebody you never talk to anymore and for whatever reason, maybe you see that person or maybe your spouse brings it up and you have to dive back into it and you think maybe months, years later, you know, I guess I could have approached that situation a little bit differently too. I mean, he, he said this and it really hurt me and I can still remember that phrase and it haunts me every day, but you know what? Maybe if I would brought that conflict to him a little bit differently or to her, you know, maybe I didn't, maybe I kind of brought some arrogance and this is like five years later when you're saying this. And James is gonna say, don't wait five years later, do it now. In the midst of conflict, start looking, start looking internally. Don't start circumstantially. Start, hey, what, am I contributing anything to this? Like, God, show me. Open my heart. Open my mind. See if there's any offensive ways in me. Because that's usually our last resort, not our first priority in the midst of conflict. And James is saying, hey, we can experience healing in conflict. We can navigate conflict in a healthy way. We can fight clean in our marriages, in our lives, in the body of Christ, if we'll start internally, not circumstantially. Look at verse 7 with me. We'll get to our third point. Verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Other translations say wash your hands. Who says the Bible isn't relevant? Come on. <laughs> wash your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Again, James, not always the optimistic one. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, James kind of gets at some idolatry there. Us trying to play God and, and we are the judge and we're the one everybody's accountable to and we decide this circumstance caused this conflict and you out there wronged me and this is the problem instead of looking at the problem within and it's a problem of we're not seeing God as the ultimate lawgiver. That's the problem of judgment. He's not saying you can't call out sin he, he, and you see it in the context. Look at it with me. He says, verse 11, don't speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother speaks evil. He's talking about other translations will say slander. He's talking about being judgmental in the context of being slanderous against someone, speaking evil against someone. So sometimes we'll read this and think, well, Tim, don't judge. Usually it's when somebody calls out your sin. (laughs) Ain't supposed to judge me. Who are you? That's what James says. He's talking about people who are not just judging you, but speaking evil, slandering you. And James is pointing out, hey, this is not gonna heal the conflict. This is gonna perpetuate it. It's gonna keep going. You're gonna feed the conflict this way. And that's our last point. The resolution for conflict is found in surrender, not perceived control. See, the problem is in us, but the solution is God in us. Notice the contrast. Earlier, it's you covet. You do all these things. Now it's submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God. Humble yourselves before God. Because he's the lawgiver. He is the judge. Humble yourself. Come to God with your conflict. Don't slander somebody else in the midst of conflict. Submit that situation to God. The problem's in us, but the solution is God in us. That statement, humble yourselves before God, can be found throughout Scripture. Another statement that we just read a little bit earlier, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That that statement as well can be found in Proverbs, 1 Peter, and here in James. And James is hitting on, hey, the opposite of judgment and slander is humility. The way forward in conflict, you got to acknowledge that it exists. you got to start looking internally. And then you have to humble yourself enough to engage in the conflict, not slander, and see God heal through the conflict. It's the opposite of judgment. And here's why James addresses this. Here's why we we judge, we slander, is because we think if we speak evil, if we judge the situation, then that makes us in control and we can fix it. See, here's what I know. I know some of you, you can see the image of the person who has wronged you. Like right now, 
Maybe it was somebody a long time ago. Maybe it was somebody when you were a kid. Maybe it was years ago. Maybe it's current, so you definitely can see that person. Some of you are thinking about the conflict you have with someone. You can see their face. You can still hear. It's ringing in your ear what they said to you or what they didn't say to you. And that's very real in your life. And some of you think, okay, what do I do with it, Tim? I submit myself to God. I draw near to him. I humble myself. Ah, but you don't understand what he said to me. Or you don't understand what she did to me. And you don't understand how I carry that. And if I were to just humble myself and submit it to God and respond accordingly, they'll just get away with it. Like, they'll just get off free. But I have to, I have to, somebody's, I gotta judge this. I, I gotta act accordingly. I gotta, I gotta be responsible for this and fix this situation. And, and so I gotta go to like ten friends and tell them what happened, and judge and slander, because that'll fix it. And and it's you're not realizing, hey, the healing is found in humility, not in judgment. And, and the reality is, in your efforts to try to judge and slander in the midst of conflict with your spouse, with your friends, with your coworkers, and your efforts to do that, to try to control it because you're the judge, here's what it does. It controls you. It's all you think about. It's, all, it's all, your whole day. When, you, when somebody does cut you off in traffic, it spills over into that, right? It spills, it's all you think about in your life. You're not controlling it by judging other people and slandering them. It's ultimately controlling you. And so God is saying, James is saying, hey, why don't you give it up to the only one, the, the lawgiver, the true judge who can solve your conflict? Don't you try to be the judge. You give it up to me. I, I know for uh, me, the, um, the illustration I think of is my son, who's seven years old, when my wife uh, lights candles in our house and we have people over, We'll light all the candles throughout our house, try to create some ambiance in our house, right? Make it smell good. And here's what my seven-year-old son loves to do. He goes throughout the house, every single room. My wife can testify. He goes to every single room. He takes the lid for the candle, and he puts it on the candle. He puts it out, right? He just loves He loves seeing the smoke, like, stir up in the candle. It's a fun activity for him, right? Now, my wife, it's not so fun for her because she has to go back and relight every candle. Listen, that's what we should do with conflict. Put a lid on it. There's an author, Tim Chester, who says it this way. Think about conflict. Think about, are you a channel in the midst of conflict? Like conflict runs through you to everybody else? You slander, you judge, you perpetuate conflict? Are you a channel in the midst of conflict? Or are you a cul-de-sac? Does it stop with you? Are you a channel or are you a cul-de-sac? Are you putting the lid on the conflict? Or do you think, no, I'm the judge. I gotta speak my mind on this. I can't let them get away with this. I gotta tell everybody I know about this. You're fanning the flame. You need to put a lid on it. You need to humble yourself, draw near to God, submit the situation to God. Now, draw near, humble yourself, Submit yourself. These are all imperatives in Scripture. Here's what that means. They're commands. They're things you are responsible to do. And so we get a lot in James, and, and, and some of us were like nodding our head, like, amen, brother, that's good. But listen, you can't just nod your head to this stuff. you got to live it. It's the hard part of Scripture. 
That's why we need the Holy Spirit of God to move in the midst of our conflict so he can help us humble ourselves, draw near, and submit. We have to live this out. So what does that look like? I know some of you, you're not involved in hypothetical conflict. It's real. It's not ethereal for you. You're like, okay, humble myself, submit myself. I want to do that. It's imperative. It's a command. How do I do that? I want to give you a few things. We have a, a, a slide on the screen, biblical conflict resolution. And it's from a, a previous sermon that I did, and I just I thought it was so helpful to bring it up again, specifically if you're in the midst of conflict and you're like, hey, what steps do I take? And I'm not going to rehash all of them. Uh, you can go back and listen to the whole sermon, Love and Conflict and the Fall, part of What is Love? And you go back and listen to that. We really dissected each one of these, but I just wanted to point a few of them out to you. The first one is, don't mistake differences for weaknesses. Again, we look circumstantial, we don't look internal. We think if somebody opposes us, something's wrong with you, not me. Don't mistake differences for weaknesses in the midst of conflict. Ask, can I overlook this? You do, to, you do need to address conflict, not suppress it, but you don't have to address every single conflict, right? Scripture says it's your glory to overlook an offense. And so you need to be asking in the midst of conflict with your spouse, with a friend, with your coworker, hey, can I overlook this? Like, is this person sinning against God? Is this person causing me to sin? Those are two good questions to ask. If the answer is no, maybe it's just preference, and you can overlook this, right? We don't have to bring everything up. Number three, get the log out of your own eye. We already talked about that. Number four, discovery is greater than declaration. How many of you in your marriage, in your friendship, the other person, the other party came to you in the midst of conflict and said this, hey, you know what, you always, or you, you never do this. This is just like that one time when you did this. And hey, this is what, I just keep seeing this in you. How much does that help your conflict, right? If you're the other party in that situation, in the midst of that conflict, is your response to those blanket statements, those declarations that they speak over you, is your response to be like, I'm so sorry, thanks for bringing that up. No, it's, you make your, I got some, my own declarations. You know, you never, while we're talking about this, you never do this. You always do this. And it's just declaration, 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 and the conflict proceeds. What if you tried discovery instead of declaration? What if you asked questions? Hey, when you said that, like, what do you mean by that? Hey, when you did that, like, I know I was going through a tough time that day, like, and I was, I might not have been listening. Like, could you just clarify that comment? And go through discovery, not declaration. That's how we humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God in the midst of conflict. You go to the next slide. Don't qualify your apology. This is when I do this all the time with my kids. I, t I tell them, like, hey, I yell because their Legos are on the floor, right? That's usually how it starts, something of that nature. I yell, discipline, and then I'm like, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I should, Daddy yelled. I shouldn't have done that. But if you would just pick up your Legos, then I wouldn't have to yell. Anybody done that? Yeah. That's qualifying the apology. It's not an apology anymore if I do that, right? Don't qualify your apology. Just repent. Could you talk about later about the Legos? Yeah. Do they need to pick up their Legos? Yeah. Do I need to sprain my ankle on their Legos? No. Right? But in that moment, after I just yelled in anger at my kids, do we need to talk about the Legos? No. We need to talk about my heart and my anger that caused me to sin against my kids. 
And I don't need to qualify my apology. We can table the Lego discussion till tomorrow. Next thing, don't condition your forgiveness. Don't say, hey, well, I'll forgive you as long as this is the last, this is the last time, right? Hey, I forgive you, but just as long as you never do this again. Right? No, we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. How has he forgiven us? Hey, hey just as long, that lust, that greed, that gossip, just don't do it again and you're good. No, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Jesus died on the cross once for all. He's not coming back to do it again because of the sin you committed last night. He's not. He did it once for all. He has forgiven you. Forgive other people like that. Does it mean there won't be consequences that need to be dealt with? No. Does it mean there won't be counseling that needs to be had? No. Does it mean there won't be continued conversation that you wish would stop? Specifically, if you're in the wrong, no, there will be that. But you can forgive how Christ has forgiven you. Don't condition your forgiveness. Last thing, don't give up. Trust in the Lord. Uh, there's a couple quotes. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, all of life is repentance. Gary Thomas, an author who speaks on marriage a lot, said it this way. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. All of life is repentance. Don't give up. It's worth it to navigate the conflict well in a Christ-centered way. It's worth it to continue to humble yourself, to submit it before the Lord, to continue to repent and forgive, not defend and deflect. It's worth it. That's how often how the relationship grows. So, so don't give up. All of life is repentance. Don't get tired of repenting to one another. Look to Christ in the midst of those situations. Verses 8 and 9, it tells us, cleanse our hands because of sin. It tells us twice to mourn, 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief. Cleanse your hands because of sin. Mourn sin. I have some close friends right now who are walking another couple, some of their friends, through some heavy sin, some conflict with some other people. And they go over to their house like three or four times a week, and they're walking this couple through this sin that they were sinned against, and they sinned against somebody else, and they're trying to help this situation. And I'll talk to him a lot because he needs a lot of prayer as he helps them pray and seek God in the midst of this conflict. And I'll talk to him a lot. And every time I talk to him, he says this. He says, hey, when we go in there, it just feels like somebody died. It just feels like after a funeral, you know, you go into a house and there's just this heaviness in the room. It feels like somebody died. And we talk about because sin leads to death, James 1. And so James is saying, hey, how do we deal with conflict? We submit it before the Lord, but we do need to, to cleanse ourselves of it. We do need to mourn it. When somebody dies, you mourn. When, when someone sins against you, when there's conflict, you do mourn. God mourns. And, and what he's alluding to is confession and repentance. Cleansing your hands, that was something the priests would do in the Old Testament before they would go into the temple because they had sin, they had conflict. They would cleanse their hands. They would mourn over their sin. And let me just tell you, Christ has forgiven us, but we still need to mourn over our sin. We still need to experience confession and repentance in the midst of our conflict and sin. That's why we take communion. We take communion, two reasons primarily, to celebrate and to confess. We celebrate God, Christ has paid my debt. He's paid for my conflict. He's paid for my sin. But we also confess. 
hey, God, do you see you in offensive ways in me? The ways I do talk to my spouse, the ways that I do talk to my kids and my, my coworkers in this conflict, this pride that exists within me, I need to confess that. That's cleansing your hands. That's mourning over your sin. That's what communion is about. So that's what we're going to do right now. Again, we're not going to ask you to come up to the front. We're going to ask you to stay right where we are, and we're going to pass you the elements. And I just ask that you take a moment that you, you cleanse your hands, you confess. You look at your conflict. You see, hey, what am I bringing in the midst of this? You mourn that. You pray about that. You submit that to God. Here's the good news. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? That's good news. Earlier in James, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the good news. When you submit this, when you mourn, when you confess, when you cleanse your hands of the sin and conflict in your life, you get more grace. And God begins to bring healing in your life and in the lives of others. So let's take a moment to do that now. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a passage on conflict and fighting and, and just acknowledging the reality of that in our lives. God, I pray that we would begin to walk out some of these steps that we just threw on the screen. God, I pray that we would have hearts of humility before you and before others. God, that we would start to, to cleanse our hands, that we would start to confess. We would start to walk in repentance, that we would mourn our sin. We would mourn the conflict that we have contributed to. And God, that we would hang on to the truth that you give us grace when we do that. God, it's when we're prideful and, and some of us are experiencing that right now. Like, well, I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't, I don't want to admit what I contribute to the conflict in my marriage, in my friendship. And God, you say you oppose people like that. And so we just, we don't want to be prideful people in this moment. We don't want to be looking out there. We want to be looking in our hearts and here and acknowledging the sin in our lives and remembering the truth that if we confess it, if we do humble ourselves, you give us more grace. You give us forgiveness. You're not bringing shame when we do that. You're giving more grace and forgiveness. So help us to respond accordingly as we, as we take this little cracker and we take this little juice that resembles the, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that was broken for us and shed for us, for our conflict with you. God, may we, may we confess and repent and receive forgiveness that only you offer. God, I pray for us now as we respond that you would do that. In Jesus' name.